If you will, um, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 9. First Peter chapter 2, starting verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Let me pray. Father, we ask this morning that you would attend to your word as we Consider what's said in various passages this morning about your church, about what it means to be a member of your local church, what it means to submit to our head who is Christ and to one another out of reverence for Christ. Pray that you would be honored in the reading and teaching of your word, that your spirit would move in our own hearts and minds to radically change us, that those who are not saved, who are not members of the body of Christ, who do not yet know your Son, but who are currently under your wrath, that you would be pleased to open their eyes and ears and save them. For those of us who do know your Son, who are walking with him, who are saved, pray that you would give us an ever greater sense of the mercy that's been shown to us in Christ a deeper sense of our need for Christ and for what he has given to us in the church and in your Spirit's work among us. Father, we pray for these gifts that we have collected as a body, that you would be pleased to work through those to bless many around the world, and that, Father, they would arrive in the hands of children and families who have the opportunity to hear about Jesus as a result and so be saved. We pray this in the name of your Son, and for his sake. Amen. Well, last week I made a claim that, um, that you should not take the Lord's Supper, which we take here every week, unless your members, now this is what I said, members in good standing of a biblically sound local church. That's what I said. Don't take it unless your members in good standing of a biblically sound local church. And I told you that I would take the time to back that statement up biblically. And my hope is to do so this morning. I I think one of the difficulties that we run into in this whole discussion of church membership in the contemporary American church is that we're individualistic people, aren't we? We're fairly committed to being anti-authority and anti-institutional. Thus, the idea of church membership immediately rubs us the wrong way. Further, it's been complicated by the Jesus People movement. Are you guys familiar with that movement? 
really in the 60s, 70s, 80s, right in there, especially in the pocket of the 70s, the Jesus People Movement, particularly for those of us on the West Coast where that movement was really um, most rooted. And as I take this movement on a little bit, I want to say this first. I thank God for that movement, for the many people who were saved in that movement, for the many people who were sent out to the nations as missionaries during that time, and for the many churches that were planted during that movement, particularly those that we have heard of as called Calvary Chapel. However, all movements, all of them, even the ones to which I personally subscribe, have some elements that aren't always the most helpful, don't they? The Jesus People movement essentially re-envisioned the early church to be a kind of fairly disorganized, informal body of believers who were a lot more like freewheeling hippies and a lot less like the New Testament description of the church. And so we tended to think, especially coming out of the Jesus People movement, that the church essentially was really pure in the first century. And of course, if you read the letters of the New Testament, you'll find out that's not the case at all. But we essentially think the church is really pure in the first century. And then thank God, finally, in the 1960s in Costa Mesa, the purity of the church returned. So we tend to think. The biblical church, however, is a lot more formal and organized and institutional than we may suspect. As a result of our culture, the American culture, of, of a result of us drinking deeply from our culture, from the well of anti-authority, anti-institutional sentiment, sentiment, sorry, I think we have not properly understood the biblical nature of the church. And so as I jump into it, I, I think I probably should start by defining some terms. A lot of times we, we talk right past each other, don't we? When we fail to define our terms, we assume somebody's saying something they're not. And so I think it's helpful if we start by defining some terms. So what do I mean by the phrase, a member in good standing in a biblically sound local church? Let me, let me define that phrase, and let me start with a biblically sound local church, that part of the phrase. By local church, I mean a, an organized group of believers who gather for the preaching of the word, baptism, the Lord's Supper, who have, who have leadership, we usually call elders and deacons, and have church discipline. That's what we mean by a, biblically sound, or by a local church. Now, what do I mean by a biblically sound local church? By a biblically sound local church, I mean a church which has a proper understanding of and commitment to what we might call the essentials of the Christian faith. Right, the essentials of the Christian faith. What are those? The Trinity. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Um, and I'm not going to list all of them. But the need for man to be saved because of our sins separating us from a holy God. That salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And that the scripture alone is our final authority in the Christian faith. That's what I mean when I'm defining a biblically sound local church. Now, I don't, I don't have all the essentials listed in there, but you guys get the main point, right? So what do I mean by a member? What do I mean by a member? I mean, yeah, you all still with me now? Good. He's already objecting to my sermon. All right. Let let me get through the whole thing first, all right? (laughs) Biblically sound local church. 
right? What do I mean by a member of it? I mean you're a baptized Christian who is participating in and accountable to and under the leadership of a local church. Now, I know, I know many people, when you hear the word member, you think of a club you join, right? Like you join a country club, you're a member of the country club. And, and you think, why do I need to be in the membership of a church? I, I just don't need another club to join. And I would tell you, amen. I, I, don't, I don't need another club to join either. However, we aren't using membership in the church in that way. To, to understand how we're using it, I began with reading 1 Peter 2, 9 through 11, but I want to focus in there just on verse 11 as he's speaking to the believers when he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Now, Peter tells us in chapter 1 at the very beginning that these these Christians are elect exiles. In other words, they've been chosen by God and they're exiles or sojourners from their home country. They have been dispersed in the great diaspora um, that we all know of uh, from the first century. And Peter is writing to these Christians and saying, listen, I want you to understand as those who are exiles in other countries that that's actually your identity. That isn't just something that's happened to you historically that you've been sent out of your home country, but while you are here on earth among, in this fallen world, among unbelievers, you're sojourners. Anywhere you go, you're exiles, you're aliens. This isn't your true home. Now, I don't mean by that that our true home is going to be some kind of mystical, ethereal, spiritual realm where we're all floating around on clouds and there are little ugly angel babies there, okay? That's not what I'm talking about. God is going to resurrect us from the dead. There will be a new heavens and new earth. Our eternity will be an embodied eternity. But the fact is, is this fallen world, which belongs to the devil, is not our true home. We are strangers in a foreign land. That's why the, authors and, the author in Hebrews in Hebrews 13, 14 can say, for we have no lasting city here, but we seek the city that's to come. The city, as we know from Hebrews 11, whose architect and builder is God. That's what we're looking forward to. We belong to the kingdom of Christ. And church membership is not like joining a country club but as Jonathan Lehman in his book on church membership actually said, it's like being a citizen of a nation and you're in a strange land and you're going to your embassy. We encourage you to think of the local church as an embassy in a foreign land. Think of how you would feel if you were in a foreign country. Okay, you are no longer in your home. The people around you don't speak your language. They aren't your people. They don't have your culture. And not only are you in this foreign land, but you're being attacked in this foreign land. You're under assault. Your enemy is all around you. And suddenly, you see your embassy, the place where you have safe haven. You would deeply desire 
to be known as a member of that embassy, wouldn't you? You would deeply desire that because you would recognize that you need what is there in order to survive in your time of sojourning. You know that you're an exile in a foreign land, right? You're a sojourner in a foreign land. You need your embassy to survive. You desire to be with those people from your home country as much as possible to help one another. You long to be home, and so you vigorously pursue participation in the embassy and with other sojourners from your home country because it's a taste of home. That's what we mean by church membership. That's what we mean by the local church. You don't think of it as a club we join. You think of it as an embassy that gives you a taste of home where members from your home country join together to encourage one another while you're under attack by the world and the flesh and the devil. Early in church history, um, you entered the membership of a, a local church through baptism. Did you guys know that? That's the way we see it in the New Testament. That's the way you see it in early church history. And because the church has changed over the centuries, it's become difficult to define what we even mean by membership. Because generally in the early church, you were, or always in the early church, you were baptized and catechized. Usually you were catechized before you were baptized. In other words, in the New Testament church, early on you were, you were just baptized pretty much immediately. But as the church began to spread, by the second century, they would actually catechize you, which we all think that's sort of a Catholic thing. It was actually in the ancient church, the Protestants brought it back, and then the Catholics in the Counter-Reformation said, oh, we better jump on board with catechism because the Protestant church members are way sharper biblically than ours are. But catechism is essentially, catechesis is essentially discipleship or teaching. You're taking along these young people and teaching them and training them in the faith. And what they did in the early churches when people were Becoming believers, they trained them in the faith. They catechized them, and then they baptized them. And they likely even put their name on a list. You know, they actually had a separate worship service just for the Lord's Supper. What they would do is they would, they would have their regular worship service, and then they would um, have what they called the love feast and the Lord's Supper, and they would excuse all the non-members, the people who were not professing believers who had not been baptized, who had not been catechized, they would excuse them and say, thanks for coming. Um, This next part is for the baptized, catechized believers, the members of the church only. They would excuse the non-members, and then they would go into Love Feast and the Lord's Supper. So since we, we don't practice that in most churches in America today, and since many people in local churches today were baptized at other local churches, right? And few churches treat baptism as an entrance into church membership. We just randomly baptize whoever, and we never talk about the fact that, hey, you're entering into being a part of this body. We just baptize them and send them home wet and forget about them. Put them in a number in our book that we record that we did so many baptisms, and then we trumpet that to the community. And, you know, we we had 200 people this year, and we did 150 baptisms, and we have 200 people next year, and you go, what happened there? That doesn't add up. You should have 350 people, right? But we're so loosey-goosey about all this stuff that nobody even knows what we mean by membership anymore. 
We mean you're a baptized believer in Christ who's intentionally in relationship with a local church. It's essentially what we mean. You know them. They know you. It's clear to both you and the leadership of that church that you are under their leadership and in submission to them. They are likewise in committed relationship with you as a believer in Christ, and they know that you're part of their body. And I know that many churches do not practice formal, formal church membership like we do. You know where we have classes and then we have you sign a covenant, etc.? A lot of churches don't practice that, and while I don't think they're employing the most robust and helpful approach to church membership, I would argue that they're functionally doing the same thing as we are. So I don't want to say those churches don't have members. They do. Functionally, they have members. The people in those churches generally still know who the members are and who the leaders are, don't they? They still know they're committed and accountable to one another. And these things, because of lots of churches not practicing any kind of formal church membership, these things can get really messy and hard to define. But the fact is, is that we don't get to deal with things the way we would like them to be. We get to deal with things the way they are. All right, so that's what I mean by a member in a biblically sound local church. I don't mean someone who's gone through a formal membership process, though I think the most robust, helpful, biblical understanding is a formal membership process. That's why we do it. I don't think I can contend that only those churches that have formal membership processes are, um, and are, are having real members. I think those churches still have real members. It's just hard to know who is and who isn't. You guys follow me on that? It's less defined. It's messier. All right, third, what do I mean by a member in good standing? So I said a member of a local church, biblically sound local church, in good standing. So what I mean by a member in good standing? I mean you haven't been disciplined or excommunicated by the local church you're participating in. I I know most churches don't participate in church discipline anymore, so you haven't had one of these meetings, which I think is far more unfortunate than church discipline, where a pastor essentially meets with you by yourself and says, if you don't like it here, go elsewhere. Right, which is sort of like the pastor disciplining you all by himself, which has a number of problems with regard to it. Here's, here's what I mean. I mean that if, if I called the leadership at a local church, they would not tell me, well, so-and-so is no longer here because they're persisting in unrepentant sin. So we exercise, exercise church discipline, or, or they left before we could exercise church discipline. Either way, they did not leave in good standing. That's what I mean. I mean that if I called a local church, they would also not say to me, so-and-so attended here, but they were never really part of the life of our body. They avoided our membership process if we had one. They never let us know that they considered us their church home. In fact, some things they did made it clear to us that they didn't want to be in that serious a relationship with us. At Sovereign Grace, we have chosen to have a formal covenantal approach to membership because we believe it gives us the clearest lines and we, because we believe it's the most wise and biblical approach. However, we are not, and I, this is what I, why I'm defining these terms, we are not contending this is the only way to do church membership. So I want to be clear about that. So when I say you need to be a member of a local church in good standing, I don't mean it needs to look exactly like the process that Sovereign Grace does. Unless, of course, you're claiming to be a member of this church in good standing. Then it looks exactly like our process. 
You follow me? So hopefully those definitions of my statement help clear some stuff up for you. And now that I've defined it, you should require of me to show you any of this in Scripture. This is great. Where is in the Bible? Thanks for the definitions. But we didn't need a vocabulary lesson. We want to see this in the Bible, right? So that's what I want to do this morning. Here's what I want to do. I want to give you four overarching arguments. Now, there are way more than four overarching arguments for this, but I want to give you four overarching arguments for church membership, and it's tied to the Lord's Supper. Ready? Four of them. Here's the first one. I'm going to require you to look at various passages. The first one is this. Church membership is a biblical word. Hear that? Church membership is a biblical word stressing our need for one another. And it is necessary for us to serve one another. You guys hear that? It's a biblical word stressing our need for one another, and it's necessary for us to serve one another. Look with me at Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, and then we're actually going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And look at verse 3. I'm not going to do in-depth exegesis on these texts. I'm just going to hit on them a small bit. Verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, he's talking to the church, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. In other words, don't be prideful. But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members. There's the word. Why do you have members in your church? Because the Bible has members in the church. We are, membership is just the adjectival form of that word, right? We have many members. And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, etc., etc. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul uses this same kind of language. He's talking to local churches here. I want you to keep a hold of that. Visible churches, churches you can see, okay, not churches in people's imaginations. You know, the kind of imaginary church you have when you're on the golf course with two of your buddies, drinking Starbucks, hitting a ball, and you say, look at all the Lord created. We're like a church now. We just praise the Lord in creation. We're all brothers in Christ. We went to church this morning. That's not what we're talking about. I use my gifts of driving the golf cart, and you use yours of hitting the ball. (laughs) Right? Okay. Okay. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Now verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 12. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Now how did you enter into that body or the membership of the church? Baptism. We're all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the one body does, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. 
If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would this be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would their body be? As it is, there are many parts Yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Did you, did you just hear that? Well, you know what? When I go to that group, it really doesn't benefit me because I'm so much further along in my faith in that group of believers. I have no need of the weaker ones. Arrogance. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greatest honor. And on our unrepresentable parts, and our, excuse me, unrepresentable parts are treated with great, greater modesty. Excuse me, unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. Which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body by giving greater honor to the part that lacked it that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member, of the bo- uh, one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So why do we use the ter- term church member? Because it's a biblical term. And you may object Well, I'm a member of the body of Christ by believing in Jesus, but I don't need a local body of believers. Yes, you do. The whole point of these passages is given to you because you need to know that you're a part of one another and you need one another. You can't say, I have no need of you, and you can't say, I'm not useful to anyone. You need to humble yourself and recognize your need for each other. That's why the author of Hebrews says, don't forsake, chapter 10, don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together. That's what the word church means, by the way. It's the assembly or the gathering of the called out ones or the elect, the people of God. Don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing. But consider how you can stir one another up to love and good deeds, encourage one another, and even more as you see the day drawing near. We have to stir one another up to love and good deeds. They're not going to happen apart from one another. The early church understood this well. That's why they met together daily. Now, I want you to hear that. They didn't just meet together weekly. They met together daily. We're like, man, I put in once this week. That's plenty. I went twice, Sunday morning and Wednesday night. Gosh, that's a lot of church attendance. Like you are doing community service and checking the box of your time. I can guarantee you, if you start to understand that you are under assault by the world, the flesh, and the devil, whether you see it or not, you will see your local church like an embassy, and you will want to flee there every chance you get. That leads to my second overarching argument. Here's the second one. 
it was the normal pattern of Christians. It was the normal pattern of Christians to begin gathering together regularly in local churches. That was their normal pattern. That's why Paul can write letters to local churches, to the church at Corinth, to the church at Rome, to the church at Galatia, to the church at Ephesus, to the church at Colossae, to the church at Thessalonica. That's why Jesus can write letters to local churches, to the church at Sardis, to the church at Philadelphia, to the church at, you guys follow me? It was a normal pattern of Christians began gathering together in lo- regularly in local churches. Look at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. Peter has just preached at Pentecost. Several thousand people, 3,000 souls at least, had just been saved. And what do they do? Verse 42. Here's their pattern. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's, in other words, the word of God. They devoted themselves to hearing the word of God, to the doctrines about Jesus. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and, to, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They were essentially um, fulfilling Galatians 6, do good to all, especially to those of the household of faith. They were essentially doing good, especially to those of the household of faith here. And day by day, verse 46 And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They were together because they knew they needed each other. They knew they were strangers and sojourners in a foreign land. Sadly, in America, um, we've been lulled into a kind of idolatrous daydream of radical individualism, haven't we? In which we see no need for one another or for the church. We believe we can survive apart from the local church because we, we live in a country where we have so long been at the center of the culture. It's been easy to be a Christian in America. But this daydream's coming to an end, folks. It's nearly over in America. We're being pushed to the margins. We will soon feel an intense need for constant interaction with the body the further we get pushed out of the center of the culture to the margins. What is sad is that we failed to understand all along that our battle is not against flesh and blood not against politicians and lawmakers. Our battle is against principalities and powers, and thus, even in an America which was intensely friendly to Christians, we still always needed each other. We just failed to know that, to believe that. And we will still always need one another because the world and the flesh and the devil are never calling a ceasefire. Hear that? Ever. 
if your chosen party sweeps the next set of elections, the devil and the world and the flesh are still not calling a ceasefire. They're on the attack all the time. And to think you don't need the body, that you'll be fine without active participation as members of the body, is absolute arrogance. It's vertically arrogant or prideful in that you're saying, Jesus, I know that you gave yourself for the church. I know that you gave your spirit to bring us into one body with one another, that you gifted us individually to care for one another, that you've united us to, to yourself and to one another. I know you've done all that, Jesus, and you're the head of the church. You're the wisdom of God. You are the Lord of all creation. But at the end of the day, I know better than you. I don't really need these people. I can do it on my own. So it's vertically arrogant or prideful, and it's horizontally arrogant or prideful. I know, Jesus, that you say the weakest members of the body are of benefit to me, but the weakest members of the body irritate me. They don't add much to me. I can't find a church where all the members are nearly as righteous as me. I certainly can't find one where the leaders are all I could be if I were them. So I can't land in a local church. It's horizontally arrogant. Jesus is wrong and other people just aren't good enough. That's what you're saying. I was recently challenged by Brandon Buser. He's one of our missionaries. His, his family's been on this tiny island in BM. Um, he didn't try to challenge me. It was just he, I was challenged by a conversation I had with him. They live on this tiny island. I want you to hear their existence. They moved onto this island in a preliterate culture. It's a tiny island. 2,000 people live there. They're six hours from any kind of mainland by fast-moving boat. They're out there. This is a preliterate culture. They know the culture and the language when they first got there. They have now learned that. They had teammates, though. And you go, oh, they have a team of missionaries helping them, right? Yeah, one family was from Germany and the other from South Korea. So you have an American culture and language family, a Korean culture and language family, a German culture and language family. Their teammates on a preliterate island in the South Pacific. You say, well, that, they, they must have a hard time having community, huh? Wonder what it's like. They must feel lonely out there. I mean, how lonely would that be? What's interesting is, as I was talking with Brandon, I asked him how his family was doing on furlough. You know, your kids are back now. Wife's back. You're back in your language and your culture. You're at your home church with all your people. Your family's all around. How are you guys doing? Because he's on furlough for this year. He goes back in March. How are you doing? And you know what he told me? He goes, you know, it's been really interesting. My kids have struggled with how lonely Christianity in America is. And I was stunned by that. I was stunned by that. He said, we're so in love with our families and our private time in America that, that we've pushed out the rest of the body from our lives. We think we are being wise to guard our time and our privacy, when really we're just being arrogant, short-sighted, individualistic Americans. 
We need each other. And we don't just need each other once or twice a week. We need each other daily. And we, I'm not saying we need formal programs of the church where we come together in some formal program of the church on a daily basis, but we do need to incorporate the other members of the body into our daily rhythms of life. We're having family dinner. We should invite some people over to have family dinner with us, and we can still do our family devotion, even with those people there. Even if those people are new believers we barely know. We're having Thanksgiving. We should invite some other people to it. We should actually start to think about how in my daily grind do I incorporate other believers in my life so that we encourage one another. My wife makes the joke that I never go anywhere alone. You go to the grocery store and you call one of your friends and invite them. I do. It's true. Jason will tell you. (laughs) So will John. Like, I don't drive anywhere alone, do I, John? You're, You're constantly driving somewhere with me. I just believe I need other believers in my life. I need them. And I don't just need them via social media. That isn't a real relationship. If you're going to use it, fine. Use it to find ways to contact each other, to actually sit in front of each other. And not sit in front of each other and text each other, but sit in front of each other and talk. Find ways to incorporate other believers into your daily lives. They need you and you need them. That's not just true for extroverts, folks. It's true for everybody. It was not good in the garden that man should be what? Alone. God is an eternally communal, relational being. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for eternity in loving relationship with himself. He didn't create us because he needed us. He already had relationships that were fully satisfying. He created us to reflect his glory to the world around us. And he created us to do that in relationship with one another. That leads to my third overarching argument for church membership. And it's titled Lord's Supper. Here it is. It is only Christians. Did you hear this? It is only Christians gathered to a local body who can fulfill the responsibilities to one another that we're given as Christians. It's only when we as Christians are gathered to a local body that we can fulfill the responsibilities given to us. Let let, let me give you some of them. I have a long list, so I'm going to run through these quick. It is only Christians gathered to a local church who can speak the truth and love to one another. What does Ephesians 4 say we're supposed to do? God has given pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, and so that we all build one another up in love, right, into maturity in Christ. We speak the truth in love to one another so that we become mature, so we become a whole man in Christ, so that we're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. We need each other. You cannot fulfill that command to speak the truth and love to one another if you don't gather with other believers, it is only, second one, it's only in the context of a local church that Christians can experience growth in the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control, faithfulness, etc., etc. And how can I show any of that or grow in any of that when I'm not with other believers? Man, I'm incredibly patient when I'm by myself. 
Nobody loves me more intently or well than I do. But what happens when I'm with other people? That's where I start to find out if if the fruit of the Spirit is taking shape in my life. It is only in the context of a local church that Christians can gather to sing hymns with one another. Don't be drunk by wine, but be, what, filled by the Spirit, singing. There's, that's, that sentence doesn't end. It's not a period. Be filled by the Spirit. How do you be filled by the Spirit? There's a content of the filling. What is it? Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. How do you do that if you're not with one another? It's only in the context of a local church that Christians can identify the leaders whom they're to respect and follow and submit to. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, for example, says to um, respect those leaders, those who work among you, right, and are over you, to esteem them highly in love because of their work among you, not because you like their personality, because of their work among you. Hebrews thirteen seven says to consider the example of your leaders' lives and to, and to follow their example. Consider the outcome of it. Follow their example. Hebrews 13, 17 says that you ought to obey your leaders. Why? Because they're ones who have to give an account for your souls. Now, how can that happen if you don't know them and they don't know you? It's only in the context... Fifth one, it's only in the context of a local church that elders and deacons can serve, caring for the flock among them. Acts 20, 28. He says to what? Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock. It's among you. First Peter chapter 5. The flock among you. You're supposed to be overseers. Not lording your authority over them, but being examples to the flock. Sixth, it's only in the context of a local church we can make any sense out of what we read in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 9. Look at 1 Timothy really quickly. This is one that I don't want to just gloss over by stating it because this is one that's less familiar. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Tell me, in an informal, disorganized group of hippies, how you pull this off. You ready? Verse 9. First Timothy 5, Paul's giving instruction to Timothy with regard to the church at Ephesus. Here you go. Let a widow be enrolled. What? She's being written down on a list? Yes. Let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. In other words, if there's a widow who's 60 years or older, enroll her if she has been the husband of one wife and if she... Um, is in need in a real way, having a reputation for good works, if she's brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work, but refused to enroll younger widows. In other words, younger widows are those under 60. Good news, ladies. If you're under 60, Paul considers you younger. If you're over 60 or older, I'm sorry. Can't do anything about it. You can take it up with Paul. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. Right? Now, how in the world does a disorganized, informal church recognize who are the people among us in our church, members of our local body, who are widows, 
And how old are those various widows? And who among them have had needs that couldn't be taken care of in the preceding verses by their family members because their families don't have the financial resources to care for them? And so we need to step in. And they don't have the financial resources themselves to care for them. So we need to step in and help them out. And we need to give them an opportunity to serve in the body because we know them. We know the outcome of their lives. We know they're godly women. We know their age. We know what's going on in their family financial situation. And so let's enroll them. And the widows underneath them, let's not enroll them. That sounds like a pretty organized group of people, doesn't it? They even have lists. How do you make any sense out of that without formal membership in a local church. Next, it is only in the context of a local church that Christians can fulfill the various biblical responsibilities given to them. For example, in Acts 13, you commission people for mission. The local church at Antioch commissioned Paul and Barnabas for mission. The local church has a responsibility to do that. Paul was called by the resurrected Christ himself to missions, and yet Paul doesn't end up as a missionary until he's commissioned by the local church at Antioch. Stunning reality. It's only in the context of a local church that's organized that that a local church can make appeals to other congregations to help resolve doctrinal disputes. In Acts chapter 15, verse 2, Paul and Barnabas are sent to Jerusalem to gather together the other local churches to have a discussion about how do we resolve certain doctrinal disputes. How do you do that if they're not organized? It's only in the context of organized local churches that Paul can call them out for following after false teachers. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Galatians chapter 1. In other words, Paul expects not just the elders in the local church, but the members of the local church to deal with false teachers in their midst. Those are just a few examples and commands of Scripture that make absolutely no sense apart from a visible local body of believers. And finally, the fourth overarching reason church membership and Lord's Supper are tied together. Here it is. It's only in the context of a local church that church discipline or excommunication can happen. I would tell you to turn to Matthew 18, but you're more familiar with that passage, so I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians 5. Matthew 18, 15 to 17 gets at this as well, but so does 1 Corinthians 5, so I just want to look there briefly. Mind you, Paul has received reports and even letters about the church at Corinth. It'd be hard to do if they weren't organized and you didn't know who they were. But he's received reports and letters and he's responding to those reports. And in verse 1 it says, 1 Corinthians 5, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. That's gross. And the pagans are grossed out by it. And it's happening in the church, the local church. Verse 2, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. What's their arrogance? They're essentially as a church saying, you know, we're so gracious as a community that we can have people in here who are acting like this because we just, we love one another and we're gracious to one another. Paul's saying, you're arrogant. You should deal with that. 
Verse 3, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In other words, exercise church discipline. Call him to account. If he does not repent, then treat him as a Gentile or a tax collector. Treat him as an unbeliever. Put him out of the assembly of the church. Excommunicate him. Look what he says. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now he's talking about the Lord's Supper here. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. I'm not telling you when I say don't associate with those people, not to associate with people in the world, because if I meant the sexually immoral and the sinful and the unrepentant in the world, you couldn't live on the planet anymore. I'm not talking about them. Who am I saying don't associate with? Verse 11, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. I've thought about using verse 13. If my kids ever are asked for a life verse, I'm encouraging them to use verse 13. God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. Their life verse, right? Anyway, sorry. If you don't get the humor of that, you haven't been in enough events where people give their life verse. All right, but here's my point. Here's my point. The, The fact is, is that there are those inside and those outside, We're to be concerned about those inside. How do you identify who are the people inside? So that you can put them outside if there isn't actually, in fact, a way to identify the inside from the outside, right? Let me tie this together with the Lord's Supper. Because Paul's talking here about the Lord's Supper. And discipline together. If the Lord's Supper is not understood in the context of being a member of a local church, then how does church discipline carry any meaning at all? Because you're being excommunicated. In other words, you're being told you're not in communion with Christ or his body. Therefore, you're not welcome to the Lord's table. When you're excommunicated, you're declared to be no longer a member of the church. You're considered an unbeliever. You're on the outside now looking in. And they're calling you to repentance so that you can come back in. How does that make any sense if there are no members of local churches? See, we're not urging, excuse me, we're not arguing that we're following the only biblical path for church membership at Sovereign Grace. 
Sovereign Grace has chosen to have a formal church membership process. We have chosen to covenant together as our vehicle as a church to establish what is already being informally covenanted by, covenanted by those who are involved here. But we're simply saying, what we're simply saying is that we want to formally know those whom we're to stand before the Lord and give an account for. We're asking people to participate in formal church membership so we know who's walking down this road with us. I suppose you could say it this way. If you want us to stand before God and give an account for your soul, I, I, want, you to, I want you to for a minute feel the weight of Hebrews thirteen seventeen. We as leaders in the church, the elders and pastors, are supposed to, are told we will, stand before God and give an account for every one of your souls. Feel the weight of that sometime. Just think of the weightiness of standing before God and giving an account for your own soul. Soul of your family. Now imagine standing before the Lord and giving an account for the soul of hundreds of people. And if we're being asked to do that, then it's really not a lot for us to ask that you at least desire to do us the favor of going through our process so that we know we're giving an account for your soul. At least do me the favor of letting me know, hey, Chad, you will be giving an account for my soul. And I'm living my life this way. I'm following the Lord. And when I'm not, I want you to call me to an account for my good and for yours so that when you stand before the Lord and give an account, you're able to say to the Lord, I was faithful in what you gave me to do. It's awfully hard to do that if I don't know who you are. If our elders don't know who you are. It's not a lot to ask even, is it? I have to stand before God. The elders have to stand before God and give an account for your soul. It's not a lot to ask for you to commit to us. We want you to commit for, to this body for your good and for ours. Now, some questions came up when I said, don't take the Lord's Supper if you're not a member in good standing of a local church. And I want to hit on those just really briefly. One, here's the first one that came up to me. What about children who aren't old enough to be formal members? We don't have formal membership for children, I think, until you're 16. So what about them? Well, we would argue that if, if they are baptized children and they understand the gospel and their part in the church, then they're okay to participate in the Lord's Supper. They're not formal members of our church. But you are. They're baptized. They know the Lord. They understand their place in this church. I think they're okay to participate. I would caution you, though, as parents, not to throw the elements out to your children too easily or too lightly. Here, have some juice and some bread. It's cute, isn't it? I would caution you to be careful about that. The warnings given to us in 1 Corinthians are serious and weighty matters. We don't want our children to eat and drink judgment on themselves. You ought to take that seriously. It's a serious and weighty matter. Further, let me say this. As a parent whose kids have done it, I just want to say one thing that has nothing to do with the sermon, but, but it's kind of a side point. My kids have been part of your kids who've rushed down to this table right after the service, started drinking down all the grape juice. You know what I'm saying? I'm not judging you because my kids have done it too. Don't do that. Don't let your kids do that. Make them feel some seriousness and weightiness to what's happening here. Now, if they want to take it outside and drink it down, I don't care. But 
let's not give this picture that this is just something to be trifled with. Second, what if I come from a church that doesn't practice formal church membership? And I'm just visiting. Or if I'm just visiting here. I come from a church that doesn't practice formal church membership. Or I'm just visiting here. I think I answered this question already. But I want to reiterate that if you're a member in good standing of a biblically sound local church, then we believe you're welcome at the Lord's table. And we're not using the word member only in the formal sense. Perhaps a better way to say it is, if you're a baptized believer who is regular is a regular and known part of a biblically sound local church body, and you're submitted to the leadership there, then you're welcome at the Lord's table here. Just follow me on that? Third, what if I'm in transition between churches? Some of you are in transition, right? If your former church knows you've left, and you've left without being under church discipline, and you're here pursuing being a regular part of this body, then I would not argue you're in violation of the biblical principles of church membership. In other words, you aren't under discipline in another church, and you aren't avoiding being part of a local church. Just follow me on that? You're in transition. You left the former church in good standing. You're now here with the intention to be part of this body, but we haven't offered formal membership yet. We don't even offer it again until March. Or you had conflict in your schedule when we did, when we just offered in September. Or you have been trying to get to know the church prior to finalizing that kind of commitment. I would argue that you're keeping the spirit of the rule. You aren't schismatic. You aren't avoiding real Christian community. You aren't in unrepentant sin. You're just in a transitional phase of life. I would not argue that you should avoid the Lord's table. The point is that you're committed part of a local church, accountable to them, under their leadership. See, we aren't playing a game. We're not practicing an empty ritual when we come to the Lord's table. We're recognizing the great gift of communion we have with Christ and with one another. Let's not make a mockery out of it. Let the Lord's Supper remind you of your need for Christ to fellowship with you and your need to fellowship with one another. Let me pray. Father, we ask we ask that your spirit would be at work in us, that we would be those who repent of our sin, that we would be those who recognize our need for Christ and for the body of Christ. They would care well for one another. that we would partner together well, that our members would seriously pursue their love for your son and for one another in the church, that we as elders would care well for the members of this church, that we would be constantly preparing through our prayer, our teaching of the word, our pursuit of the lost, our pursuit of those who are wandering, our rebuking of those who are disobedient, that we would be constantly preparing to stand before you and give an account for their souls. We pray that you would work powerfully among us so that your son would be exalted in our midst for the glory of your name. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.